Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Over the last 10 years, no writer has had a greater impact on how Americans talk about race, history, and politics than Ta-Nehisi Coates. Through his essays on Barack Obama and the idea of a post-racial country, the blockbuster Atlantic cover story, The Case for Reparations, and his era-defining work on police violence between the world and me, Coates became the North Star for his generation. Now he's heading back to Howard University to teach the next generation, We'll talk about his appointment and the eerily unsettled state of America's fragile, multiracial democracy. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Ta-Nehisi Coates, one of America's premier thinkers on racism and systemic inequality, has taken on many roles. Influential essayist novelist, comic book writer. Last week, Coates made headlines for his latest move, teaching writing at his alma mater, Howard University, along with journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. The announcement came after Hannah-Jones rejected an offer from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill after a contentious and drawn-out tenure debate, which Coates publicly criticized. We're going to talk with Coates about disinformation, police brutality, and the role of journalism in American democracy. ta welcome to Forum. Hey, Alexis. Thanks for having me. So I want to know, how did this coup for Howard go down? Were you like, listen, Nicole, if UNC doesn't work out, you could always like, how how did this actually happen? Well, you know, anybody who knows Nicole um, knows that uh, she is her own um, agent and her own most fiercest agent. Um, You know, from my perspective, you know, Howard is where I I went to school. I have not graduated from. Um, I have deep roots in the community. And so there'd been a long conversation about me uh, coming back. And once it was clear that she was going, um, you know, me and Nicole are good friends. And it just it just felt natural. You know, a lot of our journalistic aims are aligned. You know, personally, we're very aligned. So it just felt like a natural thing. Yeah. And do you know how you're going to work together down there? I know she's got uh, like a journalism institute she's starting. You're going to be in the English department, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm mostly dealing in creative writing. And she's actually in uh, the journalism school, the School of Communication. I don't yet. I don't yet. I mean, we, we, we've brainstormed over some ideas. Um, we need to probably spend, you know, just some more time getting this situated um, and getting it figured out. But I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I mean, it's pretty incredible. I mean, it just instantly vaults like Howard you know, into a, a different category of journalism school. And it was already already a good one. I'm, are you going to move down to D.C.? 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess I'll probably have to have something down there. You know, um, I can't imagine myself commuting and, you know, commuting, you know, regularly. And I also feel like, um, you know, I, 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 I don't want this to be a thing in which um, my name, you know, like I'm a professor in name only or I'm a part of the community in name only. I mean, it's a community that, that I really, really love. And so I, I really plan to spend, you know, as much time as I possibly can, yeah. you know, uh, on that campus. And, like, you know, Howard is one of a, a bunch of historically black colleges and universities. Um, how do you anticipate, you know, sort of the relationship between what you're doing at Howard and that, that broader set of schools? Um, well, you know what I would hope? Uh, you know, I, I think I've, I've said this, as, as you said, uh, you know, just said it, Alexis. I think I've very much emphasized the fact that Howard is part of a, a broader community. Um, I know that there has now been some talk about other folks who, you know, um, might would also like to teach at HBCUs. I, I hope that continues. Um, I hope that continues beyond Howard. Um, from my perspective, you know, when, when we use the adjective Black to describe institutions or, or beliefs, um, it, it should not be um, a mirror image. This is a, 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 um, an opportunity for reinvention. And so, you know, what I say is Howard is often, you know, mostly, you know, at least, you know, among, you know, people around Howard, it's often called the Black Harvard. And that is a distinction that I think we should not embrace. Um, I think we should, you know, very much lean into the communal aspect of being part of, you know, an HBCU community. And so in, the, in that spirit, um, you know, I, I, I went to Howard University. And so that was a big part of, of my return. I know Nicole has a particular affinity Howard University, and that was a part of her, you know, um, return. But when I was in college, you know, the first school that admitted me was Morgan. And I graduated from Morgan State University, I would have went back to Morgan, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I, I hope that people don't see Howard um, as singular among HBCUs or, 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 or the acceptable HBCU or however you want to put it. I, I hope that, you know, we're thinking and looking broader. God, that makes sense. Um you know, so teaching you have done in the past uh, up at MIT uh, with Juno Diaz and uh, in the MIT writing program. I mean, how do you see teaching as part of your actual creative project overall? That's a great question, Alexis. You know, I, I think the most important part of it is um, if, you, if you do something long enough, you, you start to do it almost instinctually. It becomes muscle memory. And I always think it's a good idea to tease apart what you're actually doing. You know, you can't teach by muscle memory. There's a horrible, just absolutely, absolutely terrible saying out there that should be banished uh, from English that, you know, uh, those who can't do teach. I mean, it's complete BS. You know, um, there are plenty of great, you know, we all know them, writers, artists, et cetera, who simply could never explain what they, you know, if you (laughs) ask them to explain what they're doing, they would have a really, really hard time doing it. Um, it is a thing to be able to break down what, you know, is actually happening um, and all of us and then articulate, it, you know, um, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You know, um, I look at stuff, you know, I had a conference with a kid just yesterday and I was looking at that essay and I was trying to figure out what was wrong. I knew that, you know, if I were writing that, I would be like, no, this, you know, it doesn't quite work. But to explain what isn't working mm-hmm. and what should be done to improve it, that is a very, very, very particular skill. And I think it's an, an important one. Um, and so to be a writer, you know, and, and to work that way and then to take up the challenge of trying to articulate, you know, what is happening and clarifying, 
you know, what, what, what is happening is, you know, it's just a challenge I enjoy. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about the evolution of your, of your writing. I mean, you'd reached such heights so early. It's almost kind of one of those things where like, well, where do you, where do you go from there? And then I was reading what you wrote in the Vanity Fair special issue that you, that you edited. And you interviewed Tamika Palmer, Breonna Taylor's mother, um, several times and sort of wove that account into sort of an as-told-to almost. And I, I'd actually never seen you work in that form. Can you tell me a little bit about just how you decided to do that and just kind of pass the mic in this way? Yeah, I mean, it. it um, the, the best thing about starting out as, as a journalist was I quickly learned that like people think of writers as being, you know, the the, the best articulators of, of a reality, but there are moments when you just aren't, you know. Um, and I've always been kind of frustrated, you know, um, by that. You know, um, people see things and say things in a certain way that that you just you just can't, you know. And so when we decided to do that Vanity Fair issue, I had actually gone down to um, uh, to, to to Louisville to do the reporting and everything, and. Um, you know, I was there for three days. I talked to Samika Palmer while I was there. And in that first interview, she told me about the night that Brianna died and how, you know, she had come to the apartment and how, you know, and, and her interaction with the police and the way she described it. Like, I'm not capable of writing that. And it occurred to me right then that, you know, um, rather than being a person who sort of parachutes in and you know what I mean, interprets and says, this is what this is, you know, um, wh- why not just go to the source of the thing and let the source speak? Um, because the one thing she was going to do that I felt like nobody, you know, because there were a lot of people analyzing that case at that, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like the one thing that she could offer or that I could offer as a journalist at that point was someone who could speak to Breonna Taylor as a human being, mm-hmm. you know, and not as a, a symbol of something. And, you know, she just did a wonderful job of that. What was the editing process for that like, right? Because you do structure the narrative, right? I mean, it's you do, yeah. it's all her words, but the order of it is is you. Um, so how, how yeah, did you go yeah, back yeah, and yeah. forth on that? It is. I mean, and, and, and in some places, like you, you know, you, you change certain language, et cetera, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, I pulled it together and then I, I, I let her see it. Mm. You know, and I asked her if she thought that was an accurate reflection. Like, did she feel like that was her talking? And what she um, said? She did. She did. She did. She did. So I think we did like six interviews um, total, you know, maybe about an hour piece. Um, And then I just, you know, I, I, it was like doing a collage, you know, I pulled together out of, you know, what, what, what she said. And then there was some places where things needed to be stitched and I stitched there. Um, Vanity Fair with their, um, you know, just clutch fact checking team, you know, looked over the, you know, transcripts to make sure everything was what it was. Um, and then, you know, we went to her to make sure that, you know, um, she was comfortable and that that sounded like, you know, she thought she sounded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to talk about, I mean, just as we're talking about the evolution of your career and your, your learning. I mean, you've always been so good at learning from the current scholarship. So I'm, I'm really curious, like, who are, who are you reading now? What, like, academic work or, or other thinkers are you reading where you're like, oh, this is new? This is added to my, to, to to the ingredients in my pot right here. You know what? Not much, man. Not much because unfortunately, or I guess rather fortunately, all I'm reading right now is Superman comic books. 
That's it. That's uh, you know, I was actually really upset about this the other day. I was thinking, my God, all I do is just read for work. You know what I mean? Whatever I'm doing, I'm like, that's where I'm at. So right now, I just read a ton of Superman comics. Wow. But your your brain is going to work on that, though. What are you learning from the Superman comics? Um, I am forbidden from saying. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, but it 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 just is, um, you know, and and, and I, I I I I'm regretful about that, you know. Um, but you know, one of the things I said early on when I took this on was, you know, like when you have a project this high profile, it's like no, nothing I I will say can help aid the reception of that project. I can only hurt it. Um, this is extended out of something that I've just come to feel you know, as my profile has grown in general, um, it's very important to me that, that any sort of art that I am involved in gets to speak for itself. Hmm. Um, as, as much as possible, I don't, I want to make myself invisible. Um, my, my, you know, me and my wife, we're both um, big fans of the, of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and uh, Kenyatta, my wife, she does this, um, you know, interpretation of this Karen O lyric. And she always tells me, you know, you, you don't want to be bigger than the sound. Mm. You know, the sound is the point. Um, and when I'm writing and when I'm creating something, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I'm pulling from so many places and frankly, you know, just on the shoulders of, of so many people who came before me that oftentimes I don't even feel like I own it. Like it doesn't even feel like mine. You know, I feel like the vessel for it. And I'm so, um, frankly reverential of that process that I just I just I, I, I don't I don't want to get in the way man I don't, I don't want Ta-Nehisi between the world and me Ta-Nehisi you were eight years in power I don't even want Ta-Nehisi Captain America Black Panther um to get in the way of this as much as possible um I want people to have their own experience yeah we're talking with writer Ta-Nehisi Coates about well pretty much everything we'll be back with more forum after the break Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Tanahasi Coates. Uh, right before the break, Tanahasi was referencing reading a bunch of Superman comics, and that's because you're at work on something that you can't disclose around a new Superman. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like you just don't, yeah. you just don't want to get in the way, you yeah. know. And anything, you know, I would say. Um, I, you know, people start interpreting, oh, this means this, this means that. And I, I just, I'm trying to, believe it or not, I'm trying to ex- protect the fan experience, <laughs> um, to, have the, to have the purest experience that they possibly can. If, they were up, if it was up to me, there'd be no trailers, you know, <laughs> nothing. You would just go in and you would just see it. Of course, that's ridiculous. But, um, you know, I, I really am trying to have, make sure people had the purest experience that they possibly can. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about 
politics and, and really more about democracy um, for a minute. You know, I was back reading um, your essay from 2012, Fear of a Black President um, in the Atlantic. And you had this line, which I just was like, man, this is from 2012. You said, for most of American history, our political system was premised on two conflicting facts. One, an offstated love of democracy. The other, an undemocratic white supremacy inscribed at every level of government. I just kind of wanted you to re- reflect on that in the in the current moment and sort of what you saw in 2012 uh, that has played out over the last 10 years. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that because I think the leap I made, if not in that essay, but certainly in the reparations essay, um, mostly after reading this historian, uh, Edmund Morgan, a uh, great, great historian who wrote this book called American Slavery, American Freedom, was that those facts are not actually contradictory, that one depends on the other, that one ultimately ensured the other. Um, that that is um, that that was the the truly horrible <laughs> revelation for me, you know. Um, and I think that probably you know because I think as I, you just articulated as I had articulated before is the formulation that's a, that's a pretty progressive formulation of American history that there was this noble desire to do one thing, but it was haunted by this um, sinister you know, desire or need or however you want to put it to do something else. Um, it's always a lot more, it was, it was a lot more disturbing for me to consider that one made the other possible. Hmm. That it was, you know, the very white supremacy, it was very domination, it was the very theft itself that, you know, made the thing that, you know, folks aspire to possible in the first place. Um, Can you explain that got... transformation a little more? Like how, yeah, how do you Yeah, sure, feel? sure, sure. So, I mean, um, We, we like, like the popular rendition at this point is our founders, and I'll make this very specific. Our founders were flawed people, you know, flawed heroes. Uh, Thomas Jefferson holds, you know, uh, enslaved people. George Washington, you know, holds enslaved people. That was their flaw, but generally they, they, they were good people. You know what I mean? With good ideas uh, about the world. But the, the fact of holding enslaved people is not incidental to George Washington and Thomas Jefferson's lives. George Washington and Thomas, and Thomas Jefferson were slaveholders by profession, by livelihood. In other words, all of the kind of intellectual work that you know we, we credit Thomas Jefferson with, take, with notes on the uh, state of Virginia, for instance, articulating in the Declaration of, of, of Independence, going abroad and, you know, being able to be, you know, the ambassador to, to France. Actually, all the things that we cry, all of that is built on the backs of enslavement. You, you need wealth to have that, or you needed wealth, certainly in the 18th century, to have that kind of leisure. Um, Thomas Jefferson, as we know him, would not have existed without enslaving people. You know, this isn't like, um, you know, eating too much junk food. You know, this is, this is a definitive aspect of who you are. Same thing for George Washington. Slaveholding was the source of his wealth. You know, it was a source of, you know, everything and his ability to, you know, do all the things that he was ultimately, you know, credited with. And, you know, if, if you doubt this, you know, all you need to do is, you know, read a, you know, a decent biography, you know, uh, on, on any of these, you know, on, any, on either of their, you know, the, our founding fathers' lives. It's quite clear. Slavery runs all the way through, you know, um, from, you know, uh, birth to death. I think about George Washington and how he would cycle his enslaved people in and out of Philadelphia, 
because there was this law that after a certain period, if an enslaved person was, you know, in Pennsylvania, they automatically became free. I think about his pursuit of, you know, the, the runaway enslaved woman on a judge, you know, uh, who worked for Washington, who he relentlessly pursued, you know, and, and, and so if you think about those two examples, you know, just as our problem in miniature, the idea that enslavement made their articulation and their actions of liberty, you know, for the few who they, you know, uh, articulated for possible, you can really broaden that out to American history. You know, I mean, we don't have all day, but, you know, there are examples of this all the way through where you see, you know, these ideals that, you know, we all believe in and we all love. And then you ask yourself, how did they actually happen? And you keep coming back to white supremacy. Hmm. You know, the New Deal is the example that I, that I, that I used and the Giado is the examples I, I used in the case for reparations. But this is a pretty constant across American history. And it's very, very depressing because it forces you to ask the question, can we have truly democratic egalitarian action um, you know, on the basis of, you know, excuse me for repeating myself, egalitarianism itself, Yeah. you know, and, and it's tough. Well, it's what tough. do you think? Do, do, have you come to a conclusion on this yet? Um, I think our political structure makes it very, very hard. Um, I think we're seeing that right now. I think we're actually seeing that, you know, at, at this very moment. Um, I think what you have is uh, a constitution and a legal system that favors um, an entrenched and determined minority. Uh, and I think you have, you see that in one party. Um, I think in the other party, you see a diverse coalition, you know, with diverse aims and, you know, with diverse ideas, but, you know, generally united along the idea, um, at least, you know, to some extent that, you know, are the kind of country they, they want to see, a country, you know, that, you know, uh, is, is not ashamed of its diversity that protects, you know, rights of, of, across the board. Like this is somewhere, you know, in the ether of the belief system, but the very diversity of the party itself works against it within this political system where, you know, a minority, you know, can hold up. Um, it's very likely that in 2024, we will have a situation in which only once in the past 20 years, you know, um, a Republican president has gotten the, the, the popular vote. Um, you start extending that out longer and, you know, you're talking about, you know, 1988 and 2004, you know, um, and yet you look at the governance structure, like what's actually happening in terms of, you know, actual government. Who controls the levers of power. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is, um, you know, you're talking about minoritarianism, you know, and so under that situation, it, it becomes really, really hard, you know. And it seems right now that one thing that's happening on the right is actually setting up all of the sort of ideological conditions for why minoritarian rule is actually okay. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I would argue that that's always been the case. You know, um, I would, you know, and I think I'm, you know, being good company, you know, saying this. I mean, if you think about democracy in, in this country, the, the only real, real period of it begins roughly somewhere, you know, I guess we would take 1968, end of civil rights movement. Um, we, we are in the midst of a very, very chancy experience with it. Um, we talk about ourselves as the first democracy. We talk about, you know, this idea of democracy being old in America, but that's not actually true. I mean, you know, until, you know, uh, uh, the Civil War, um, Black men, you know, could, couldn't vote. Um, and even after the Civil War and after those, those you know, amendments that, that were passed, um, in large swaths of the country, due to redemption, black men still couldn't vote. Women couldn't vote at all. 
you know, uh, until uh, the early part of the, the 20th century. And so, you know, and even after that, you know, you have all through the South, you know, vote basically does not exist, mm-hmm. you know, for Black people. And so we, we don't have much experience with egalitarian democracy. That's not a thing that we, with true democracy, that's not a thing we actually have much of a history of in this country. We're talking with writer Ta-Nehisi Coates about politics and the world. What questions do you have for Ta-Nehisi? How has his writing influenced how you see the world? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum uh, at kqed.org. I want to come back to this question of this sort of fragile multiracial democracy, which actually hasn't existed for that long in the United States. And maybe what feels to me like it was kind of that it's high point, which is to say 2008, the election of Barack Obama. I remember, you know, celebrating in the streets of the mission here. Um, I, I, you said something recently. Um, we said you think that Barack Obama broke some people's imagination. Um, what, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, so presidents in this country are not just occupiers of, you know, and, and, and employers of, of executive power. Like that, that's not it. Um, we have whole mythologies around presidents. We have ideas around presidents. Presidents are about, um, they, they, they are heroes, you know, in our, in our, I mean that in the, you know, the strictest sense, in, in our imagination. They, they, we, we ask them to embody certain things about the country. They're symbols. They're not just, you know, uh, CEOs of America. I mean, even CEOs are symbols to some extent, but you, you, you get what I'm saying. They mm-hmm. aren't just mere employers of, of, of power. Um, for the president to be black, obviously inspired, you know, certain things in, in, in sectors of this country, certainly in black America, people felt, you know, uh, very, very positive about that. Um, I think one of the great flaws was not at that point for many of us to ask the question, if every president up until then had been a white male, would there not be a relatively powerful constituency that itself felt some type of way about a black president. In other words, you know, you've been fed, you know, on on, on a steady diet of of, of white men as the rightful occupiers of the White House. That's messaging, you know, to, to, to people. And so I think we focused a lot on those of us who are happy to see that string break. Um, We didn't think too much of the fact that there were many, many, many Americans who are not happy seeing that string break. And, you know, I think they've reacted in kind. I think we see the results of that, you know, even right now. Yeah. You know, something that I've chewed over a lot, you know, thinking about this period uh, post-civil rights movement, um, where you do have a lot of Americans, you know, white Americans in polls, um, in, in kind of most of the ways that like social scientists would try and get at the idea of um, racism, personal racism among white Americans. You know, all those measures pretty much are going down um, on a you know, population level. And yet we see economic fortunes for black people since 1980 going in the in the reverse direction. <laughs> Um, which seems to like how do we make sense of this seeming sort of paradox of, you know, at least by how we could measure it, declining um, white racism and worsening economic fortunes for black people? Well, I think first to first, I mean, if you understand that um, 
white supremacy is always anti-democratic. It always has been, you know, anti, anti-democratic. It's not like, you know, the Civil War, they took a vote and the South decided to. The South might well have lost that vote, even among white people. Um, so if you understand that this is not, like, in other words, majority feeling is not the barrier itself, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, certainly there are places and times where, you know, you get a, you know, a, a, you know, a majority certainly feeling a certain way. But generally, this has been a powerful minoritarian movement. Redemption, the defeat of Reconstruction in the South was not, you know, uh, accomplished, you know, through, you know, a fair and, you know, a, up and down, you know, democratic vote. That's not what happened. You know, um, and so this is this has always been a, a even among white people, I must stress, even among white people, you know. Um, so I, I don't think we should necessarily expect uh, a correspondence or a direct one to one correspondence between, you know, the feeling of racism, you know, and actual result. You know, I, I think the other thing is, you know, it's one thing to be sympathetic to a group of people. It's another thing to come up off of material resources on behalf of, you know, making things right. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no equality in this country that allows white people to live as they live now. That's just not possible. You know, um, it would require, you know, some amount of sacrifice. It would require, you know, some amount of feeling, you know, uncomfortable. And, you know, what we're seeing right now, you know, is certainly there is at least a minority in this country that is uncomfortable you know, with, with that idea. That's why you have state, you know, people employing, you know, the power of the state to ban ideas from curriculum, to ban uh, uh, publications in the New York Times, you know, such as, you know, the 1619 Project, you know, from uh, 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 the curriculum. Um, what that reflects is some level of discomfort. I, I don't know that it's among the majority. I'm at pains to, to you know, point that out. I don't, I, you know, I don't know if we you know, had actual democracy in this country um, then any of this would, would be happening. But it, it's enough of a minority, it's a critical mass, as I would say, you know, to, to make, you know, progress very, very difficult. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, another explanation or another piece of this, right, in, in the uh, Vanity Fair issue that you guest edited, you had um, an interview with uh, Angela Davis, um, Bay Area figure, obviously, uh, luminary. Um and, you know, at one point she says, and I have this here, she says, um, I think we have to talk about capitalism. Capitalism has always been racial capitalism. Wherever we see capitalism, we see the influence and the exploitation of racism. And then she talked a little bit about like sort of the Occupy movement and it's sort of the new language that it gave people around the 1% and, and things like that in terms of kind of a, a new imaginary space for, for a different kind of economic system. Um, how have you been thinking about the sort of economic structures uh, of the of the United States and and whether um, this system can can be with less anti-blackness in it. Um, no, I don't think it can. Um, that's the first thing. I think it's some people's notion there's a world in which um, there is a quote unquote fair capitalism, um, you know, in which there's capitalism without racism. Um, that has never existed. And I think there's a reason why it would, would never, you know, exist. Part of the root of this is, you know, in, in, in that imagined world, you know, white people would have to compete with black people. I'm not saying that's the world I want. I'm saying that that, that is the imagined world that, that, that folks think that, you know, we, we, we could live, or certain folks think that we can live in. Um, that generally hasn't gone well in American history. 
you know, for all sorts of reasons. There's a reason why they burnt down Black Wall Street. Um, black success is always, Black financial success, Black wealth has always been targeted for, 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 for terrorism, for repression. Um, and I don't really see any reason why um, that would be, you know, that would, that would, you know, in any way change. That's one thing. But, but I think the second point is, um, as I said earlier, I'm not particularly interested in black as an adjective that is somehow a mirror of white or what we know as white right now. Um, the singular power of, of, of the black freedom movement has always been its ability, not just to articulate the struggles of African-Americans or the black diaspora, you know, or people who, you know, uh, are of a, you know, uh, um, a particular social category or ethnic group, um, but that it has the ability to shine a light on everything else. The power of Black Lives Matter is not just that Black Lives Matter. The power is because of the condition of Black people in this country, if Black Lives Matter, then everybody's life really does matter. And I would extend that to, to you know, the, the, the current, you know, wealth situation in this country or, you know, the lack of wealth among, you know, uh, uh, most people. You know, um, we have folks who have captured, you know, large amounts of wealth um, in this country, you know, who are more interested in extending their dominion, you know, to the moon than they are of, you know, extending, you know, fair wages and, 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 and a, you know, a just lifestyle to, to their workers. Um, I think I'm being waved off, but I, I, I hope we can continue. <laughs> That's this. the, so I'm gonna, that was the hook for the break. Yeah, we, 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 we can, we, we, we will. We're talking with writer Ta-Nehisi Coates about politics, inequality, Black Lives Matter movement, and many other things. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Tanahasi Coates. What questions do you have for him? How has his writing influenced the way that you see the world? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch um, on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Uh, we want to bring in a, uh, a caller, Rachel uh, from Woodacre, wants to talk about post-progressive politics. Hi, thanks so much for getting me on, Alexis. And Tanahasi, I am such a huge fan of yours and always so moved. Every time I hear you, it's an honor just to get to speak with you. I am wondering if you're familiar with something that's fairly new, maybe about a decade old or so. It's been called integral politics or post-progressive politics, which is really saying that that founding vision that we have was really a sacred vision and is a sacred vision, and we haven't fully developed into it yet. And to see this whole thing as a political journey, which I know is really painful and hard to think about it when you're at the effect of that journey. But I'm just wondering if you think it might be a hopeful way to hold all this, is that we can keep evolving and moving toward 
that founding vision. I'd love to hear your take on sure. that if you're familiar with that Thank at all. Thanks, Rachel. Sure, sure, sure. No, I'm, I'm not. But I, but the idea that you articulate, I am familiar with it, and I've thought about it myself a few times. Um, if only it would it be that simple. I mean, if only it were. Our problem is that we're running out of time. You know, um, it, it is not as if we will have the luxury of continuing on, on, on you know, this journey forever. Um, I was just in California, Southern California, uh, for a good little while, and every day I would go out hiking. Um, in, in the Los Angeles area. And I had never been, you know, uh, much of a hiker. This is the first time I actually hiked by myself. Hmm. Um, and it was so beautiful, just incredibly, incredibly beautiful. In fact, I couldn't believe I'd wait until I was 45, you know, to, <laughs> to, to, to do this. Um, and yet I, I felt like I was in the, the, the middle of a, of a giant graveyard, a natural graveyard, because it was clear that everything was so dry. All you needed was for somebody to come out and spark a match and, and you know, the whole thing would go up. Um, it was deeply, 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 deeply sad. I say that to say that on, you know, issues of climate and issues really beyond climate, but climate being the most stark, I just don't know that we'll get the time. You know, um, it has always been my contention. I made this case in, 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 in between the world to me that white supremacy um, was an existential issue for this country. That is to say, if you are comfortable exploiting people in the way that black people are exploited in this country. If you're comfortable with us erecting the largest gulag, the largest monument to mass incarceration ever in human history, I, I just, I, I don't know how much hope there is, you know, that one can hold on, that we'll actually beat the clock and, you know, become responsible stewards of the planet. Yeah. Um, I think that's hard. I think that's really, really hard to see. I think, you know, you mistreat people you know, um, and that you get used to, you know, mistreating people, you exploit, you become an exploiter, you get used to exploiting. Um, and so, you know, maybe if we had more time, maybe that would be possible. I, I don't know that we do. Yeah, it's a, it struck me that, you know, the form of the problem of reparations, you know, having to, to deal with these historical harms that have been done and also make, you know, future change going forward, it actually has some features in common with what climate justice would require. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I mean, it, it requires you to think of yourself as part of something and not the Lord of something. Um, it requires you to uh, recognize your connections with the past. Um, part of the changes that we have to, you know, make, you know, if we're going to, you know, uh, 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 survive, have to do with things that we've done in the past. They have to do with things that, you know, uh, many of us, you know, who weren't even alive, you know, uh, 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 happened, but we have to see ourselves as part of some sort of lineage. You know, we can't retreat into, well, you know, X, Y, and Z had this, so I shouldn't be responsible for that. It's, it's a very, actually, you know, the, 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 the contrary thinking on reparations has a lot in common with the contrary thinking, you know, on climate and on the environment. Um, and so, like, for me, again, you know, the lessons of the Black struggle were never just for Black people. Yeah. You know, you were often frustrated um, during the Obama years by sort of, I, I guess I just want to, you know, like, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, but kind of the smallness sure. of the vision. Is that a fair thing to say? I, you know, what I found most frustrating um, was probably Obama's inability to see um, what this country was capable of in the negative. Mm. Um, he could not imagine 
that birtherism would be so powerful that it would not only elect his successor, it would, you know, evolve basically into, you know, what we have now, making the country ungovernable. He never could imagine that. Now, what I always said, and I still believe this to be true, if he could, would he be Barack Obama? Would he have ever won in the first place? I don't know that he would have. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that kind of belief in, you know, American innocence is exactly why, you know, I guess he what he would say is probably American promise. Let me be generous here. You know, I don't want to. It's a serious question. I'm not trying to caricature anybody or anything. Um, I think what he would describe as American promise or, you know, an optimism about America, I think that was necessary for him to be president. Um, I don't know, you know, ultimately, you know, to God, there was enough skepticism. What do you make of Joe Biden's like sort of surprisingly big moves? Well, I, I think the first thing I have to say, and this is why I should never be in the prognostication business, is I, you know, I was wrong. You know, I certainly didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, a buddy of mine, actually Adam Sir, made, made made a great point. You know, uh, during the campaign, he said, "Look, Biden has always been right in the middle of where the Democratic Party is." <laughs> and so, if you consider that the party has moved to the left, that you know, uh, uh, the, the the left flank of the party probably has more power than it has, you know, at any point in my lifetime. Um, Biden becomes a lot more predictable. Um, I think also, I think the fact of there, I suspect that there are many people, you know, I've read reporting that says that there are many people who, uh, you know, worked in the Obama administration and, you know, made the mistake of governance of, of taking folks at their word on, you know, on the, on the opposing side and believing they were actually interested in governance when in fact, what they really were interested in doing was running out the clock. Um, and so I think there's some of that at work, you know, so there's probably a little bit more urgency. Yeah. You know, I wanted to touch on also COVID's kind of role in a lot of these things, because it feels like it kind of revealed that there were some hard things about the structures of American life, but there were also a lot of things that were malleable, too. Are there new things where you've sort of seen new potential for change as a result of kind of seeing what COVID kind of wrecking ball through society? Not really. It's been miserable. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was absolutely, I mean, again, you know, a lot of this comes out of, you know, reporting I did, you know, for Vanity Fair, some other reporting I've done. Um, it's been terrible. And I think um, in many ways, um, what has been even more sad is to see that there are people in the world who are so um, selfish, um, so vain, that they would hold power and then, you know, um, not use that power even to benefit the lives of their, their quote unquote followers, but to urge them along the path to death. To make this specific, you know, particular, you know, um, I'm thinking of Donald Trump getting the vaccine in secret mm. and doing nothing to urge, you know, almost nothing to urge his followers to get vaccinated. It, it, it's unconscionable because there's some sort of political gain in it. It is unconscionable, but it's also the logical extension of the idea that anything that is a success for the opposition is bad for me. Even if that means my own followers dying or being hooked up to ventilators, you know, just dying alone in the worst possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, that is deeply sad. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, 
Let's bring in Luis uh, from Berkeley, a law, law school professor. Hi, Tanasi Coach. I just wanted to say I really appreciate your work and your writing, and it's impacted me. And um, I actually grew up in the housing project in Queensbridge and converted garages in L.A. Um, and what you wrote, the case for reparations, really spoke to me in terms of the policy and the law and the history of segregation in our society. And, in fact, I used your work and assigned it to my law students. I teach a, I taught a clinic at Hastings Law School in San Francisco and Berkeley Law on community economic development. And I assigned not only your um, piece, but also Nicole Hannah-Jones's piece, the, the piece that spoke to black farmers and how, you, you know, the USDA policy excluded black farmers from receiving uh, loan, you know, access to capital and loans. Um, so I just wanted to say your work has impacted me and making me see that my experience is not like just some kind of just came out of the blue, that there was a whole history that led for the housing project in Queensbridge and, you know, my living in the garage in, in, L, in L.A. And, you know, I'm passing that, that experience, my personal experience and your, you know, your work onto the law students to give them a history and, and understanding of how the law and policy has impacted our society and specifically communities of color, black and brown folks. So I just want to say thanks for, for your work and how it's an example of how your work is impacting um, people out here. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. You know, another example is um, California has a reparations task force now, like some other states and, mm-hmm. and jurisdictions. I, I assume you're following some of these things um, as they seem like um, at least partial echoes of that, of that original sort of seminal essay. What do you what do you think of them? I actually am not. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not, you know. I mean, what, too many yeah, Superman comic books to read, you know. No, yeah, that's, that's, it's true though. It, it is more true. I mean, this is the guy who has literature going back to 1938. You know, so I am. I mean, I, that really is the world I'm living in right now. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm not too much. I mean, I, you know, I obviously wish them the best, um, but no, not too much. Yeah, yeah. Do you think they're going to succeed, or do you think it's just kind of like a, a place where the the idea can get parked until the the heat comes off? You know, I I, I don't know, I don't know. But what I do think is, um, and this is always how I view, view my job as, as you know as a journalist. Yeah. Look, it is not my job to say solely the things that are possible within my lifetime. Um, it's also my job to you know point to the North Star to say this is the kind of society that we should live in. You know, um, and so I, I haven't spent much time, you know, thinking or assessing, you know, um, possibilities or, or success rate. Um, my job is to say things that are currently outside of the imagination, but that, you know, I, I believe actually would help us, you know, as we try to move to a better world. Yeah. A uh, couple of reader comments. Actually, one one quick question, which is sort of funny. Thinking about the desire to disappear behind the work, Robin tweets, would ta Coates ever consider a pen name? More importantly, what would his pen name be? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I mean, not, not at this point. Maybe I should have. You know what I mean? But no, not, not at this point, I wouldn't. Just checking. Um, yeah. at, uh, another couple uh, points more, more serious. AJ writes, it's a really important point about what happened to some people when Barack Obama was elected. However, I'd like to point out that if everyone who voted Obama into office had his back in the midterms to ensure he had a majority in Congress, things would be very different today. The 2022 election is even more important than the 2024. What do you believe it would take to capture the imagination of voters to take midterms as seriously as presidential elections in the fight for equal rights? 
so I, you know, I think that the premise of that question, which I don't, you know, is obviously true. Um, I think the premise of that question, though, pretends as though there are no actors um, who are working to ensure uh, that the that you know midterm elections don't have that same turnout. Um, I think there are people who profit from you know um, as few people as possible voting, mm-hmm. um, and I think they de- design laws to make that you know uh, to make that to make that happen. You know, um, and so um, I don't know. We see that happening right now. We see that fight happening right now. So what I think it would take is um, for a large swath of those or a critical mass of those in power to actually believe in democracy itself. You know, when you see a drop off, when you, in other words, when you see large groups of people, you see a large group of people dropping off, that, that can't be ascribed merely to individual will or laziness. That, that, that is a systemic thing. And so something's happened systemically. I don't think that we should rely on governance via inspiration or via charismatic figures or, or via, you know, even imagination. You know, I think the, you know, the, the place of government, you know, when it comes to, you know, democracy, our most sacred ideal, you know, is to design systems to ensure that it's protected. Yeah. You know, Daniel writes uh, a comment, and I, and I want to extend on it a little bit. He says, um, is there any way we can move forward without blaming our predecessors or judging our ancestors through the crystal clarity of hindsight, present day morality? Is it possible to see these sins in developmental instead of 21st century moral terms? Um, and I, I want to extend that a tiny bit just in, in the sense that, you know, we've talked a lot about the sort of historical reckoning um, that had, you know, that people, love, people have used that, that phrase a lot, this sort of like reckoning, this reckoning, this reckoning. Um, but it feels like it has um, a kind of frozen view of history at times. You know, that history. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, yeah. if I could, yeah, go the, ahead. the obvious answer to that question is yes, we can. Um, you don't need to ask Tanahasi, you know, what he thinks of slavery. You know, um, you should ask someone, you know, from the period of enslavement what they think of slavery. So the ultimate judgment on, on, on enslavement is not mine. It belongs to Frederick Douglass. Um, th- that's the key. When people talk about, you know, the mores of the time, they are usually talking about the mores of the people who were perpetrating the sin in the first place. Um, so, I mean, you know, you know, it is not as if that, you know, during, you know, this period, they weren't, you know, a large number of people who understood that this was dead wrong. You know, um, the ultimate verdict on enslavement is not mine. You know, uh, you can read, you know, the, the 1864 inaugural of, of Abraham Lincoln, you know, to get the ultimate verdict on that, you know? And so this is not, you know, the case of us endorsing, you know, or creating, you know, morals and, 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 and mores and, you know, ideals and ethics today is the case of the ethics of that time that were correct in that time and were articulated in that time, ultimately triumphing in the public consciousness. These are not, you know, 21st century ideas. Yeah. Uh, what about the, the 21st century ideas? What, have you had a lot of contact with sort of Gen Z activists? And how do you see the generations, you know, younger than us, kind of coming along and what they have to, to add? Um, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm notorious adverse to activists, uh, not because activists are bad, um, you know, um, and not because activists aren't inspirational. They, they, they very much are. But I do keep my, my distance um, because I feel like my job as a writer is, is, is different. Um, from my perspective, and everybody doesn't share this, 
um, were I trying to move a mass of people to, you know, do, um, to accomplish something, I probably would talk a little differently than I talk. Hmm. My pursuits would probably be a little different too. Yeah. Your goal, I always liked that you said this, your goal was you wanted people to be haunted by your work. I did. And if I were an activist, I don't know that I would be trying to haunt people. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be trying to inspire people, you know, which is a different thing. It's a different call. Yeah. Um, I've also heard you're at work on a new book. We're, we're almost out of time here, but I, was, I heard you're at work on a new short book with Chris Jackson. It's, is that going to come out anytime soon or is that still far off? I don't know. I shouldn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we have been talking with writer ta Coates about race in America, Superman comics, and so many other things. It's always such a pleasure. Thank you for coming on, Ta-Nehisi. Thanks for having me, Alexis. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.